I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. At first glance, it would seem that any of us who follow the breast cancer experience would look to the investigators, the scientists, researchers, and their teams for inspiration. They are, after all, dedicating their lives to fighting cancer. In this conversation, you'll hear the opposite. To listen to Dr. Gabriel Hortobagi, you hear the inspiration and insight that he and his teams gain from the grace of breast cancer patients, in particular, people who have triple negative breast cancer and their families. You'll also hear about the unique novel research that Dr. Hortobagi and his colleagues are doing to investigate resistance to various therapies and ways to develop combination therapy to overcome the resistance. This was a powerful, thoughtful, hopeful conversation with a scientist who knows, as he says, that the patient is the most important player on the team. More about Dr. Hortobagi. He's a professor in the Department of Breast Medical Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's also, not insignificantly, the chair of the BCRF Scientific Advisory Board. Among his many honors and positions, he has served as past president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, as a member of the U.S. National Committee for the International Union Against Cancer, on the National Cancer Institute's Breast Cancer Progress Review Group, chaired the steering committee of the Breast Health Global Initiative, and, well, the list could go on. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Gabriel Hortobagi. Dr. Hortobagi, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me in, in this program. <clears throat> to begin, congratulations. You are now about uh, six or eight months into your run as chair of BCRF's Scientific Advisory Board. Is it what you thought it would be? Well, uh, I have been involved with this organization since the inception, so uh, I've seen from inside the evolution of the SAB, and it's clearly an honor to um, take the next step in being charged for a while. What uh, What's your mission for the board? Or I'm not sure how long your term is for, but what are your goals? How, how might you hope that your time is remembered? The BCRF is a, a somewhat different organization, and it is run uh, less formally than many other granting agencies. And that, uh, by that, I mean that while most other agencies uh, just publicize a granting mechanism and let uh, investigators take the initiative of applying and proposing projects. We invite people who have already demonstrated uh, success in breast cancer research, and uh, on the basis of their track record, we ask them to apply. That is quite different. It's a totally unique model in, in, in America or around the world, for that matter. The uh, Scientific Advisory Board evolved from a small nucleus of people who were involved with Larry Norton and Evelyn uh, Lauder in the development of this organization. And uh, therefore... 
the activities of the scientific advisory board are less formal than other organizations where uh, people uh, might go through an entirely different process to join. Uh, having said that, all members of the scientific advisory board are fairly senior and uh, fairly uh, well-known on the basis of their scientific contributions to the field. So the stated original objective of um, the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and therefore of the Scientific Advisory Board is to eliminate uh, the suffering uh, caused by the diagnosis and development of, uh, of uh, breast cancer in the uh, universal population. And in order to accomplish that, our uh, purpose in the Scientific Advisory Board is to recruit the uh, top investigators, not only within the United States and elsewhere in North America, but the rest of the world, because uh, cancer doesn't have borders, and of course, science does not have borders. So our function is to identify those people who should be supported by BCRF, and with that support, uh, move the needle towards uh, prevention and cure of breast cancer. And when cure is not possible, then amelioration of quality of life and uh, uh, better control of symptoms, whether physical, psychological, or otherwise. What an incredible um, opportunity and responsibility, obviously. But it feels from your description that it, it allows somebody like you to go beyond the work that you're already doing. I mean, you've already obviously dedicated your life to uh, the mission that you just described, helping uh, reduce or eradicate the suffering that occurs from breast cancer. And uh, it's almost a way to go beyond yourself and identify uh, the other uh, researchers, scientists who are doing uh, extraordinary work, maybe work in other forms of cancer, and uh, find ways beyond your own research to uh, to help fight the disease and help help address the problem. I, at least that's how that's how I'm interpreting part of what you're saying. I don't know if that's how you view it. Oh, uh, absolutely. So, uh, all of the, the senior members of the scientific advisory board uh, have had decades of experience and dedication to uh, this particular. Uh, project and uh, to breast cancer research at large. So throughout those decades, all of us have come in contact with uh, the great majority, of, if not all, of the um, most recognizable and most accomplished investigators in the field. Yeah. And we view our, our function as not only identifying those that we know about, but also those who are emerging and who are the next generation of um, of investigators, because eventually, you know, we will have to pass the baton on to the the next group of people who will continue after we are history, and um, that, of course, uh, means continuously interacting with other investigators in the field and uh, uh, identifying people through our own collaborations, uh, through attendance at meetings, through reading journals, through uh, roundtables, discussions, conferences, congresses, and whatnot. 
and in the process we uh, also try to to balance the BCRF portfolio. By that I mean that there's no organization that has uh, infinite resources. So we need to um, manage the resources that BCRF is able to raise in the most efficient way. Uh, and if um, we have, let's say, 200 funded investigators, we do not want to uh, spend uh, the resources on 175 of them doing the same thing. So we try to balance the portfolio so that there is substantial uh, attention being paid to all of the emerging opportunities for prevention, early diagnosis, uh, monitoring, uh, surgical and radiation therapy, uh, systemic treatments, targeted therapies, and of course the management of survivorship, which in and of itself is a, 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 a an emerging uh, field of science. Yeah. So all of that uh, requires continued discussion, and of course we are unable to fund all the people we would like to fund, or all the projects we would like to fund, but we do our very best to balance the portfolio so that we have uh, prominent investigators and leading projects in all areas that we consider important uh, to improve our ability to treat and manage and cure breast cancer. Yeah, well, it, it certainly is an extraordinarily balanced portfolio, and, and the range of projects and, and power of projects um, is, is really something. I also appreciate uh, the uh, analogy that you mentioned earlier in that last response about uh, you know, part of your responsibility at some point will be to pass the baton. Um, unfortunately for you, or maybe for, fortunately for you, I should say, um, that, that time is not yet. Uh, so let, let's talk about you and let's talk about um, your research uh, and, and the work that you do. Um, in, in reading about you, I came across a very intriguing statement that you made a, a couple of years ago. Um, you said breast cancer is the prototype for cancer prevention. What did you mean by that? What I meant by that is that... Um the observations that we have made in the course of managing breast cancer over the past uh, 40, 50 years uh, have led to um, new directions in treatment that not only uh, satisfied the need for improving uh, treatment, curative treatment of primary breast cancer, but also opened doors to preventing additional uh, uh, breast cancers. So, so let me uh, expand a little bit on that. Yeah. Once you have one breast cancer, you have a a certain finite risk of developing a, another breast cancer, a second or in sometimes a third breast cancer, and that varies depending on certain risk factors. So, for instance, if you uh, have totally average risk, uh, you're an American-born and raised uh, woman, then you would have about a 1 in 10 chance of developing breast cancer if you uh, survive and are cured from your first breast cancer. When that second breast cancer will occur and where uh, in the remaining breast, if you had breast conserving surgery or the contralateral breast, if you did not, uh, is uh, not quite predictable, but the risk is 
uh, estimable. Mm. Now, if you have uh, a, a strong family history of breast cancer, uh, you're a carrier of one of the gene mutations, or you have uh, such a strong family history that you have multiple um, siblings, uh, first cousins, first degree relatives in general, then your risk is substantially higher. And um, we have observed during the development of what we call adjuvant systemic therapy, but especially adjuvant uh, hormonal treatment or endocrine treatment, that when you administer a drug such as tamoxifen or such as uh, uh, anastrozole to patients with hormone receptor positive primary breast cancer, not only do you decrease the risk of a reoccurrence of that breast cancer or metastasis from that breast cancer by about 50%, but you also reduce the risk of developing a second or contralateral breast cancer by about the same proportion. So it was that first observation which was actually made in the 1980s that we uh, stopped and thought, gee, this uh, sounds very much like uh, uh, a prevention uh, yeah. intervention. And on the basis of that, we developed an entire program. We are using the royal we, but I'm talking about the breast cancer community. Uh, uh, and that led to six or seven very large prospective randomized trials that in fact demonstrated that if you take individuals at risk for developing, in this case, not the second, but the first breast cancer, uh, based on a variety of risk factors, then you can reduce uh, that occurrence by about 50%. It's a little bit lower than 50%, let's say 45% or so. Uh, if you use either five years of tamoxifen or a similar duration of drugs such as anastrozole or letrozole or exemestane, uh, which are the, the aromatase inhibitors we use to treat advanced breast cancer, but in this case, they would be used as uh, primary prevention for breast cancer. And so that has been amply documented, and because of that, because this was actually the first observation that was not only um, um, determined anecdotally, but confirmed prospectively in multiple uh, trials and the large meta-analysis that was performed after all the trials were completed, that we uh, made the statement that breast cancer is the prototype for uh, cancer prevention, and that similar observations uh, can be made, certainly in other uh, hormone-dependent cancers, and perhaps uh, under different circumstances and using different uh, interventions uh, in other uh, malignancies of, uh, of man and woman. It's been one of the consistent themes of these conversations and part of the discovery um, that, that's been really amazing for me in particular is just what you described, the way that um, lessons, insights, successes, failures in one area of cancer get translated, if you will, into other areas. And so many of the scientists that I've uh, gotten to, to talk with um, have taken findings or insights from, you know, prostate cancer or some, some other area and apply it to breast cancer and, and, you know, and in reverse as well. 
um, which I, I take as, you know, a little bit of, of what you're saying, maybe not everything that you're saying, but, but a little bit of what you're saying. Uh, an area of, of your research, triple negative breast cancer, um, that is a tough area to work in, obviously. Uh, it, it probably, it, you know, you'll tell me if you disagree, it, it, it might not get tougher than that. Why do you focus there? Uh, if you uh, f- forgive me, I would like to step back one second just to make a comment uh, about what you just said prior to asking me this question about triple negative breast cancer, because I think it is an enormously important observation you made. Yes, please. And that is the the uh, major reason why the overwhelming majority of scientists support research for the sake of research as opposed to purely applied research. Let me explain. Uh, When you work for the pharmaceutical industry and you're a scientist, your task is to develop eventually a commercially uh, viable product that your company can sell while at the same time, of course, doing some good by serving as treatment for uh, a condition of one sort or another. In pure science, you ask fundamental questions without necessarily knowing where you're heading with that. And this sometimes frustrates uh, lay folks and politicians at large who have to uh, divvy up limited resources. Mm. But the fundamental research supported, for instance, by the National Institutes of Health, or in the case of this conversation by BCRF, is incredibly important because the reality is that most applied research fails, fails at the moment, not necessarily forever, but it fails when you do not have answers to other related questions. And it is because of the uncertainty of where the next step forward is going to come from that it is so important that we support all research related to, in this case, cancer. Because it is not only what applies to breast cancer that will work for breast cancer, but the next observation, as you mentioned, in prostate cancer, or perhaps in melanoma, or perhaps in leukemia, and sometimes in, I don't know, multiple sclerosis or cardiovascular disease, Mm. will be the piece of the puzzle that is missing in order to take the next giant step forward in controlling, curing, or preventing breast cancer. And that is a concept that is so important and so fundamental in the field of research that we cannot for a second forget it. All right, now let me get back to your question about uh, triple negative breast cancer. Of, of course, but but thank you, I, obviously, for making that point and, and putting a, a punctuation mark on it because, yes, it, it's, it, it certainly seems that way and, and it really has come across um, from these conversations and in particular, and you know, this is maybe something for a separate conversation, um, at a time when so many uh, science budgets um, may be getting cut, uh, you know, in, in various areas, uh, yes, the, the, the point um, that 
that you just made is uh, just so incredibly important. So, so thank you for that. And, and uh, yeah, so, so t- talk to me, uh, triple negative breast cancer, um, devastating, obviously. So triple negative breast cancer <clears throat> is um, defined as a, a lack of expression of uh, three gene products, uh, estrogen receptor, uh, progesterone receptor, and uh, human epidermal growth factor receptor 2 or HER2, and therefore being negatively defined as opposed to being defined by a positive attribute. It is a a, a wastebasket diagnosis, as we call it uh, informally, because it is not a single condition, but it is... uh, a group of diseases that just happen to share those characteristics, the lack of expression of ERPR in HER2. That group represents about 15% of primary breast cancers, Mm. a somewhat higher proportion of metastatic breast cancers because the prognosis of primary triple negative breast cancer is less favorable than that of the rest of breast cancers. Therefore, it is disproportionately over-represented in the metastatic setting. Stage by stage, uh, it uh, is associated with a less favorable prognosis after optimal therapy than either the luminal types of breast cancer or the HER2-enriched breast cancers. And to a large extent, that is related to the fact that we do not have a single um, effective targeted therapy to use, as opposed to the luminal cancers where we have multiple targeted therapies, including all the endocrine agents and CDK4-6 inhibitors and mTOR inhibitors and uh, pietri kinase inhibitors, etc. And in the HER2 enriched population, where uh, anti-HER2 uh, therapies such as monoclonal antibodies and tyrosine kinase inhibitors and antibody drug conjugates have made an enormous difference. So if we go back uh, about 20 years when HER2 was first uh, identified and a diagnostic was discovered, at that time, uh, and if you were able to classify your breast cancers into hormone receptor positive and hormone receptor negative in the third group as being uh, HER2 enriched, well, the worst prognostic group was the HER2 positive or HER2 enriched group. The, uh, the second worst prognostic group was the triple negative uh, group, and the best prognostic group was the uh, hormonal uh, sensitive or the hormone receptor positive group. Since the development of all these targeted therapies for HER2-positive disease, that has become arguably the most favorable group because uh, treatment makes such an enormous difference that this poorly prognostic group has become a favorable prognostic group. Uh, Something uh, similar has happened, although less dramatically, in the hormone receptor-positive groups. And the orphan in this remained the triple negative group of breast cancers. Now, to the best of our understanding, triple negative breast cancer is a conglomerate of probably uh, five or six or maybe seven molecularly distinct subgroups. And because they are different, the 
the likely emergence of an effective targeted therapy will be different for each of uh, these subgroups. And that's what has complicated the matter here. So some of those triple negative subgroups are apparently uh, androgen receptor uh, uh, positive. Others uh, express a molecular profile that suggests that uh, uh, they are uh, manipulated by immunological reactions and therefore might be candidates for modern immunotherapy. Uh, Some others are very basal-like tumors that lack just about all of the uh, other characteristics from the other groups but uh, may have mutations or overexpress uh, genes that accelerate their their um, uh, growth and division and uh, and uh, dissemination throughout the body and those might require yet a different group of targeted therapies so my uh, team has focused on on this triple negative breast cancer and continues to focus on that Uh, both in the lab and in clinical trials. In the lab, we have worked um, in the development of PARP inhibitors uh, and more recently in the development of uh, checkpoint inhibitors, immunological checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors. And in the combination of these two groups of agents, so PARP inhibitors with PD-L1 inhibitors and PD-1 inhibitors. In the clinical arena, uh, we have uh, developed what we call a bucket uh, clinical trial uh, schema in which um, we take all patients with triple negative breast cancer and sequence their genome, well, not their entire genome, but uh, let's say uh, several hundred of the genes that are commonly associated with the development of breast cancer in general and triple negative breast cancer in particular. Mm -hmm. And through that uh, um, sequencing, we identify those molecular abnormalities that could serve as therapeutic targets. And we focus especially on those therapeutic targets against which there are either approved or investigational drugs in development. And because when you do that, you divide an already small population into even smaller subgroups, we can't possibly hope for running large randomized trials in each of those subgroups. So instead, once we identify a molecular abnormality, if we have a targeted treatment that might be useful to test against that molecular abnormality, then we place that patient and that treatment into one bucket and treat them. And we hope to accumulate enough numbers in each of those buckets, of which there are a pretty good number by now. So at the end of the day, we can come up with some practical conclusions of this drug is likely to work in this particular setting in the face of this particular molecular abnormality, or this combination of drugs might do that. So that has been uh, 
the 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 focus of the MD Anderson Moonshot uh, program, which is focused in, entirely on triple negative breast cancer. In the meantime, as I mentioned earlier, we are working on specific areas of interest, uh, uh, immuno-oncology and the contribution of PARP inhibitors and checkpoint inhibitors to the control and eradication of uh, triple negative breast cancers. And, and how do you or how would you explain? I mean, the Moonshot Project, obviously... Um you know, it's a moonshot project, and and by its nature, and it kind of relates perhaps a bit to what you said earlier that you know so much of research is needs to be done um, for research sake, and it may or may not deliver immediately, but uh, you learn different things, and it may deliver in other areas, and and at the same time, just maybe uh, a moonshot lands. W- what do you communicate, or how do you communicate? Um, you know where you're at to people who suffer from triple negative breast cancer or, or family members, I guess, you know, in terms of your hypothesis, and then I know you're just, you know, you're just gathering data, so it's, it's likely, you know, too early to start discussing what you might be seeing, but what, 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 anything that you can say about your hypothesis and the testing of your hypothesis vis-a-vis the trials that you're doing? Well, uh, so clearly this is um, uh, this is teamwork, and when I say teamwork, it's not only a team of scientists and, and uh, clinicians, but it's a team composed of patients, uh, their families, uh, funding agencies, uh, pharmaceutical companies, and all of the scientists and physicians involved in this. So we consider that uh, we are the patient's partners in this enterprise because, mm-hmm. you know, the patient is the single most interested party in this theme. Yes. And we are their agents. So in, in, uh, once you understand that position in the team, then you realize that you uh, have to be very transparent about what you do. So uh, our Whenever we see a, a patient with triple negative breast cancer for the first time, we spend a fair amount of time, uh, uh, we meaning the physicians and also our our clinical team, the nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, clinical pharmacists, etc., to to make sure that we impart us um, detailed in education about what triple negative breast cancer is all about, uh, the limitations of our current treatment, what is realistically uh, achievable with uh, state-of-the-art management today, and what we are hoping to to get to uh, in the process of developing novel treatment. And in that process, then, we explain why we need to uh, do certain things. So, uh, for instance, we tell them about what we understand uh, understand about the molecular biology of triple negative breast cancer, or what we already know are the major molecular abnormalities, the P53 mutations, the, um, the EGFR uh, overexpression, the P3 kinase uh, mutations, uh, uh, certain pathways that are dysregulated, and, and so on, without trying to drown them in in scientific gobbledygook, 
but so as to tell them that we already have made a certain amount of progress in understanding in greater detail and in greater depth what uh, we think makes uh, a triple negative breast cancer such an aggressive disease. And then we take the next step saying, but we hope that in the process of attacking those molecular abnormalities we already know about, we can um, take steps to understand what else treatment accomplishes. And mm -hmm. for that, we need to do a second biopsy so that after we start your treatment with, let's say, an anti-EGFR antibody, that uh, we know what happens uh, two weeks or two months later. Um, and we can correlate that to the clinical response as well as to the molecular uh, changes that take place. And only by doing this systematically will we learn why certain treatments based on a solid scientific hypothesis work and why other treatments based on equally solid scientific hypotheses do not work. Uh, and then we will understand mechanisms of resistance. We will understand why certain molecular abnormalities are <clears throat> passenger abnormalities and not drivers of, uh, of the behavior of triple negative breast cancer. So uh, in that sense, then we develop this partnership with patients. And I can tell you that our experience has been that patients are uh, rather... Uh, um, uh, excited about being parts of uh, part of this team, and and they uh, they are very willing to push forward with not only our recommendations, but they're making suggestions about why don't you do this too, so that we can contribute to knowledge in addition to benefiting from the uh, evolving treatments um, that you are developing. So it, it's been quite exciting to to see this because uh, I remember. <clears throat> as recently as uh, 10, 12 years ago, when the conversations in our major uh, oncology meetings were along the lines of physicians discussing among themselves that, oh, patients would never go for having to biopsy them again <clears throat> because biopsies are such uh, horrible things to do. And it turns out that when you ask patients and you explain to them why you want to do a first and then a second biopsy, and they understand what you are trying to accomplish, they are much more aggressive than most physicians would be. So it's been an interesting evolution. Now, over the past 10 years, uh, I would say that a, a distinct majority of oncologists, both in uh, community practice and in the research community, have uh, come around and are much more accepting of uh, what we need to do in order to understand what uh, our treatments do and how our cancers evolve uh, throughout treatment. Well, it's so interesting to hear about, and it's got to be very inspiring for somebody like you and, and for the other researchers, all the medical practitioners. I mean, I, you know, you, you describe these patients as the, uh, you know, the primary player and Surely they are part of a club, part of a team that they never wanted to be on. But I would imagine that, you know, what I'm hearing from you is they, they see, a, not all of them, but, but the ones that you're talking about and the ones who are able, um, see a cause uh, that is perhaps bigger than themselves and the opportunity to almost literally give something of themselves uh, for 
other people and, and for the research. And that's got to be incredibly um, humbling and inspiring for somebody like you. You know, one of the <clears throat> very interesting things that I have learned throughout my career, uh, and uh, I, I must uh, just mention here that I learn something from every patient I see. It is uh, it is truly an amazing process. Um, one of the things I I learned, and it took me years and years to understand it, is that I always thought that cancer was and is a horrible disease. It it can be disfiguring. It can cause an incredible. Uh, amount of suffering and symptoms and pain and uh, and of course expenses and it leads people into bankruptcy and uh, many still die of it. So I always thought of it as this horrible, absolutely horrible thing that had incomprehensible uh, raison d'etre. And and yet I I saw time and time again and heard from many of my patients, that cancer had made them better people. Mm. And and it was hard for me to understand. But I, I, you know, I tried to put myself in their shoes, and I, I, I would imagine that if I developed breast cancer, I would be angry, I would be frustrated, I would be... Um, really crying out for why me and uh, how could this happen to me and, you know, just lash out at everything and everybody around me. And very few of my patients do that, if any, because being faced, and this, you know, I'm just synthesizing to you many years of trying to understand this, yeah, yeah. Uh, trying to face a potentially lethal diagnosis it refocuses their mind. They, and, and so many of the peripheral and superficial things that we worry about as uh, human beings in our usual hurried life uh, just fall by the wayside. And they stop being important. And they start focusing on, on what they eventually define as the most important things in their life. And those become, to a large extent, relationships. So family, friends, uh, children, grandchildren, and so many of the other the annoyances uh, just stop being important and uh, they just uh, sort of disappear. And by making that transition, that transformation into focusing on what is really important in life, they become better people. And in that sense, they are better people than those of us who treat them because we still carry that baggage of focusing on minor things, you know, and uh, the minor irritants in life. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and this has been an incredible phenomenon. And understanding that is totally humbling. That is such an extraordinary insight. And uh, I can only imagine to to see, to experience that level of grace um, and see it in action, and perhaps so regularly yeah, as you do, um, yeah, that's, uh, th that really must change one's view and, um, and open some eyes. Thank you. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you for the work that you do uh, and your team does every day. 
uh, an honor and a pleasure to be involved in something that uh, is more like a hobby for me. Uh, in retrospect, I would have done it even if I didn't get paid for the, the work I do. Uh, and it has been incredibly rewarding. That, that's terrific. We'll, we'll make sure that the, uh, you know, the powers at the Anderson Cancer Center don't know that you would actually work for free. We'll try to make sure that. <laughs> but but your, your point is understood. Thank you. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. That was my conversation with Dr. Hortabaji. My thanks to Dr. Hortabaji for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.